Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me. Today, I want to start by going to the book of Colossians. This morning, the Lord just dropped this verse on my heart, and I don't know why I didn't think about it earlier in the week, because it just ties in so fittingly to, to what God is saying in this service today. I want to go to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, and we're going to let this be the launch pad for where we're headed today. Now, the the conversation that I, I'm going to tee up here in this sermon is going to be picked up on a deeper level in about three or four weeks by our life groups. So if you're a part of one of the life groups, uh, this will be one of the later sessions. Many of the groups already started last week. I've got a group that's starting uh, this evening, and so several groups are meeting, and uh, we'd love for you to get connected in those. If you're still not and you'd like to know how to, by all means, uh, Go to the info center after the service, and we'll get you all the information. But today, I want to talk. I want to talk about gravity a little bit and how uh, it impacts our walk with the Lord. But I want to start here in Colossians chapter one, verse thirteen, because there's two things that are happening here that I think are are pivotal that we all understand. And look at it with me. It says in Colossians. 113, for he, Jesus, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Are you thankful today for a rescue? Aren't you thankful that God can redeem us out of the dominion and out of the territory of darkness? But that's not the only thing that he's doing. Look at the next part of that verse. It says, and he brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. What I want to say to us at the beginning of this message is that, that, that if you're in a dark place, and I, I'll just pick up where Dana left off, because that was powerful, sister. If you're in a dark place, God wants to bring you out. He wants to set you free. He wants to deliver you out of the uh, place of darkness in your life. But God doesn't want to bring you out just to leave you out. God also wants to bring you into something. And this verse communicates so powerfully uh, what Paul said in another place, that he who began a good work in you shall bring it to completion. Just like God didn't deliver the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt just so that they could be nomadic people in a wasteland. No, he brought them out of bondage in Egypt so that he could bring them into a place of promise. And God has a promise place for you in your life. A purpose where you would thrive and fulfill your God-given purpose and potential. And and I I want you to see that verse this morning and and understand that this is what God wants to do in the heart and life of every believer. I thank God for what he's brought me through, but I'm also pretty glad about what he's bringing me to. How about you? He's taken us somewhere today, amen? Amen. Come on, you got your Bible in your hand. Let's just ask God to bless this time together. Father, for these next few moments, I just ask that you would speak through your spirit, through my lips, God. Lord, say what you want to say today. Not only would I ask that you use me, but God, give us all ears to hear what you're saying. God, that we wouldn't miss it, that we would grab by faith the word of the Lord, and that it would bear fruit in our lives. God, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. Can I just tell you today, God wants to take you somewhere that is above and beyond what you've experienced in your relationship with him. And that's a broad stroke statement, but that applies to every person here. Whether you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years or whether you're still on the fence about this thing of faith, God wants to take you above and beyond 
your current relationship with him. He said, no. now, why, why would you say that? Ex- except to maybe just, you know, get, get a cheap amen. No, I can say it with authority because the Bible says that, that God wants to move us into the image of Christ Jesus, and we move from glory to glory, to ever-increasing glory. In other words, God's plan for your life, his plan for my life, is that every day that I walk with Jesus, I become a little bit more like him. That the, the spirit of Christ that lives in me bears more fruit. In Galatians 5, I begin to, to, to weed out the fruit of my sinful nature, and I begin to harvest the fruit of the spirit of Christ in my life until one day, and I don't know when that one day is for me or for you, but one day I'm going to step across the threshold of this life. And when I step into eternity, it's going to feel just like the next step. It's going to feel just like the next breath because God's plan is that you and I would become more and more in tune with the mind of Christ and that our lives would be connected to what he's doing, that one day we're going to just step into his presence and we're going to just continue to stride into eternity in fellowship with God's heart. So wherever you're at in your relationship today, understand God wants to take you above and beyond. And there's verses in the Bible that, that kind of challenge us and remind us of uh, just how far we have to go sometimes. In fact, I read one of those verses this week, and I'm going to read it to you. I don't know if you're going to like it any more than I did, but it's God's word and it's authority, and I want you to hear it. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, this is what it says. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone. Anybody besides me struggled to just obey that challenge right there? Just, I see a lot of deep sighs in the room going, yep, yep, I know what that feels like. I'm, I'm making every effort just to, just to live in peace with everyone. Now, it's not always possible, but we got to make every effort. But then he goes on beyond that. He says, and be holy. Now, if it's not enough to just try to keep the peace He says, I want you to be holy. And then the writer of Hebrews ratchets it up another level, and he says this, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Come on, that got serious real quick. I mean, we went from encourage me, tell me I should try to get along with people, tell me I should strive to be more like Jesus, to by the way, if you're not holy, you don't get to see God. And I read a verse like that, I got to slow down. I got to take another sip of my coffee in the morning. I got to get some clear vision and say, what exactly are you telling me? And can I tell you today that the God that we serve is a holy God? And so we can't take lightly the words that, that talk about what it takes to move into the presence of a holy God. Listen, there's a lot of words that we use to describe God. He's God the Father. He's our light. He's our shepherd. He's the anchor. He's the lighthouse. He's the the strong tower. And there's a lot of beautiful words and descriptives that we use to try to describe an undescribable God. But can I tell you, when we call him holy, it's not a metaphor. It's who he is. He's holy. Third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. That's not a nickname. It's who God is. He's holy. The prophet Isaiah is called the prophet of 
holiness. And repeatedly, he calls God the Holy One of Israel. And if you took all the names that we have for God, all of the the metaphors that we use to describe our relationship to him, and you added them all up, it still wouldn't equal the number of times that the Bible says he's holy. He's holy. The holiness of God refers to God's altogether different nature. The holiness of God is his transcendent separateness. It's his exalted majesty. It's his awesome power, and it's his absolute purity. The holiness of God is his immeasurable brightness. It's his unfathomable glory, and it's his redeeming salvation. He's holy. Holy is shorthand for the excellence of his perfection. Holy is just perfect. And yet, the Bible says, be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And this verse in Hebrews 12 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So if what the word of God matters, if what it says matters to you, it begs the question, how do I become holy? I mean, if I'm going to see God, how do I become holy? And let me tell you first how you don't become holy. You can never achieve holiness by subtraction. There's a lot of, a lot of people that would equate uh, holiness to all the things we don't do. And so the idea of a, a religious approach to holiness is, well, if I, if I stop going to those places and I stop talking to those people, and I stop doing those things, and I stop saying those things, and if I can just get enough stuff out of my life, I can just remove everything, and then eventually, I'll be holy. And can I just tell you, that's not holiness. That's not how you become, you don't become holy by subtraction. What we need is not just to to pull stuff out of our life, though that's certainly a part of the process of God's work of sanctification. The reality is we need the Spirit of God to come into our lives. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and infuse us and renew us with power that will enable us to break through the barriers that have held us grounded. See, gravity is an amazing thing. When you think about gravity right now, it's, it's making this earth work for us as a hospitable environment. Without gravity, our, our atmosphere doesn't stay intact. So the air that we're breathing just kind of floats off if we don't have gravity. Right now, gravity is, is keeping us just the right distance from the sun that we didn't freeze to death this morning but it's not allowing us to get any closer so that we don't burn up with a fervent heat. Gravity is working to make this life a reality for us. Some of you, you felt gravity this morning when you tried to get out of bed, didn't you? Anybody? anybody? You felt like maybe the gravitational pull was a little stronger on the weekend? I, la- I laugh. Some of you, I watch you in worship, and I see you battling gravity. Yeah, I'm up here going, come on, lift your hands to the Lord. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah. And then sing it again. You know, you're worshiping. I see kids and kids just doing that. Like, like I want to participate, but my arm hurts. We've all, we've all felt 
gravity. And, and here's the funny thing about it. I, I read recently that the gravitational energy of the whole earth is estimated to be only one millionth of a horsepower. One millionth of a horsepower means that if you had a toy magnet in, in a child's hand, that magnet would be thousands of times stronger than the gravitational energy of the whole earth. But what gravity lacks in power, it certainly makes up for in tenacity because it's relentless. It's not really powerful, but it's everywhere. You can't escape it. You can't get away from it. In fact, you've never experienced a moment of your life without it. You were born into a gravitational pull. And there's another pull on our lives that this reminds me of, and it's the reality that each and every one of us were born with a sinful nature. You and I have never experienced a day in our lives where we didn't have that pull of the sinful nature. It's, just, it's always there. Now, some days it feels stronger than others, doesn't it? Some days it's a little bit harder to get up and to overcome it. Some days you feel like you're moving uphill and you got a heavy burden. And we even describe it that way. Boy, I just, I just feel like I'm under a, a heavy burden. Right When our spirit is weak, we, we use it in, in physical descriptives like it's a weight. And we all know what that sinful nature feels like. It feels like gravity, and it's continually pulling us down. The Bible says that all of us have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. In other words, all of us have that same gravitational pull of sin in our lives. David was right when he said these words in Psalm 51. Verse 5, he said, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, which, by the way, is a great pro-life verse. David said, I had a sinful spirit at conception. But we all feel that sinful nature. We all feel it. Do you ever notice you don't have to teach kids how to sin? Right? Anybody raise some little ones, you know? I mean, you, you tell them, like, no cookies before dinner. And then you leave the kitchen, and what do they do? They go grabbing the cookies off the shelf. It's just, it's that, don't touch that, it's hot. Okay. You know, they go for it. I was remembering uh, when our oldest daughter, Morgan, was... Uh, maybe about four or five, and you know how it is with parents with your firstborn, you know, your kid's perfect. They, you know, they can't do wrong. You know, the nursery workers are never good enough. The preschools are never good enough. It's your firstborn. And one day, we noticed a mark on her arm. We asked her, what is that? What happened? I don't know. She said, I don't know. I mean, it looked bad. We said, what do you mean you don't know what happened? I, I don't know. It was just there. And, and we just, we, we were scratching our heads trying to figure it out. We were like, you know, asking the doctor. She's got some weird mark on her arm. Well, what's it look like? Well, it looks like a burn, but she doesn't know how she got it. And she was just so pure and so honest in those big brown eyes. We never thought in a thousand years that she was just flat out lying to us. 
So we believed her, and we're investigating. What in the world is this? Well, you know, finally, after about a month, she fessed up and told us she touched the iron, and it burned her. And she didn't want to get in trouble for breaking the rule. And the iron didn't matter. I just remember how stupid I felt and how amazed I was at the ability to, for such an innocent, beautiful, perfect child to look me straight in the face and say, day after day, I don't know how that got there, knowing full well that she was lying. And so God sobered me up really quick to the reality that how many of you know we all are born with a sinful nature, and it comes natural to us. James talked about it, James chapter 1. He was on the same page we're at today. All of, us, all of us are tempted to sin. And so he gives some instructions about that temptation. He says in verse 13, when you're tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So if you've ever felt that way before, this is good theology right here. God hates sin. Sin cannot abide in God's presence. He will never do anything sinful, and he will never tempt anybody to do anything sinful. You'll face tests, you'll face trials, but God and his spirit will never tempt you to do the wrong thing, just so then he can slap your hand and say, gotcha. That's not the way God works. And then he goes on a little farther and he says, but here's the reality. Verse 14, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. We say, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. It's my fault. I thought, I thought the devil made me do it. I thought this was the devil's fault. Like that's who we blame, right? I mean, it's the, the horns and the pitchfork. This is the devil. And James says, no, no, no. You need to understand when you're tempted, it's because of the desire on the inside of you. Now, does the devil tempt us? Absolutely. But you know what? He has no hold on you unless you give him the raw materials to work with. In fact, Jesus said that about himself. Jesus said, the prince of this world is coming, but he has no hold on me. And the reason he had no hold on Jesus is because Jesus was not born with a sinful nature. That's why the the doctrine of the virgin birth of Jesus is so important. We understand that was a significant miracle in Christ coming to the earth because he bypassed the sinful Adamic nature of Adam. He was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit of God. And so when when Satan came, Jesus was tempted. The Bible says he was tempted at all points, as are you, but without sin. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. But all of us do. And so the writer, James, says, you're you're enticed by your own evil desires. Uh, Now, the the temptation might have come from the devil. And it might have come from somebody else. It might be something on the inside of you. But there's something in you that reaches out for it. You're enticed. And then it says in verse 15, after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. He said it begins in you. It's the sinful nature inside of every one of us who has ever lived save Jesus. Jesus didn't battle the sinful nature because he was sinless. See, it's kind of like gravity, and this is an interesting thing about gravity. Anything that has mass has gravity. So you have, you have a gravitational pull. You're like, I know, I drug myself in here this morning. Like, <laughs> you have gravity. 
because you have mass. And obviously the earth has gravity because it has mass. And and, and I don't know what your weight is, and I'm not going to ask you, but we determine what your weight is based on the, the earth's mass and its gravity and your gravity. That's how we know how much you weigh. And so because the earth is the size that it is, you weigh what you weigh. So let's just say for a minute that everybody weighs 100 pounds. You're welcome. Feels better already, doesn't it? Let's just say everybody weighs 100 pounds. That's what we would say you weigh on this planet. But if we took you over to Saturn, it's just a little bit bigger than Earth. You'd weigh 107 pounds because it's got more mass. And so it's got more gravity. But if we took you over to Mercury, you'd only weigh 38 pounds. If we put you on Jupiter you'd weigh 253 pounds. Why? Because Jupiter's much bigger and it's got a lot more mass and so it's got a lot more gravity. But if we stuck you on our moon, your 100-pound frame would only weigh 17 pounds on the moon because it's got a lot less gravitational pull. I don't know if you're connecting the dots yet, but what I'm trying to tell you today is that there are conditions outside of me that are pulling at me. And there are conditions inside of me that are pulling at me. There's a sinful nature at work in me. And there are temptations and opportunities on the outside of me. And the larger those things loom in my life, the more pull they have. I just got to tell you, there are some sins that, that you might be wrestling with today that have no sway on me. Now, I don't say that arrogantly. I say it knowing that there's probably some things in my life that I've wrestled with, that I'm tempted with, that, that, that have no gravitational pull on your life. It, it has no mass. It doesn't loom large in your life. It's not a temptation, never has been, probably never will be. But there are things in your life, that, like gravity, that want to pull you away from the upward call of God, from the holiness that he has in mind for you. And those things are looming large in your life. Did you know it's also true that that gravity gets weaker with distance? And so the gravitational pull of something, it it gets weaker the farther you get away from it. And can I just say, to apply this, for some of us, that's the reason that your faith has been grounded. That's the reason you haven't been able to go above and beyond to the things that God has for you. Because you haven't given yourself enough distance from those external things that are pulling you away from the things of God. They, they just, they have too, too much sway in your life. And, and the most significant thing you could do as a step of obedience to God is to take a step away from some of those things that are pulling you away or some of those people that are pulling you away from the heart of God and the plan that he has for your life. I'm so grateful for the, the testimonies that we heard this morning from these ladies. I'm thankful for the program that they're in with New Life for Girls because what this program is is doing for them, among other things, is it's, it's an intentional step away from the gravitational pull of their old life. Some of you need to take that step. But when they step into the program, there's no false pretenses they know they need to change. You, you know when you commit to go into a voluntary program, 
You know, I I need some things to change. And so they take intentional steps away from what used to suck them in to the gravitational pull of the sinful nature, to the hurt, to the pain of their past. And they say, I'm going to, I'm going to let that become much smaller in my life. I'm going to distance myself from that. And I'm going to let the things of God become massive. Every morning, we're going we're gonna to have devotion. We're going to get in the Word. We're going to have chapel time. We're going to be in churches every weekend. And some days, they're going to book us to be in one church two times, and they got to hear the same sermon two times in a row. But that's okay. That's okay, because we're letting God become massive. We're letting His Word become massive in our lives. And David said, oh, let us magnify the Lord. And let us exalt his name together. And when all of a sudden the things of God become big and massive, we begin to feel the gravitational pull towards holiness and righteousness and sanctification. You know, that word sanctification is a a word that is often translated as holy. Oftentimes in Scripture, they're interchangeable. For something to be sanctified just means it's set apart. And that's, that's what God wants to do in our lives. He's, he's set us apart. And not just set us apart from things, not just holiness by subtraction, but set us apart for something. There's a purpose and a plan that God has for our lives, but we have to purposely move away from the gravitational pull of the things of this world so that we can move closer to the heart of God. There's a word that I want to I give you today, the good Bible word. The word is repent. Now, I don't, know, I don't know how that word lands on your ears when I say it. I know for a lot of people, it, 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 it's a word that causes you to bristle, like repent. Because maybe you picture somebody like pounding the pulpit and, you know, screaming at you, repent. Or maybe you picture that person holding a sign on the side of the freeway, you know, repent from your sin. You will see God at the end of the road. Turn or burn. You know, you get those pictures in your mind, and 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 the word has been it's been used like a like a Christian arrow or a flaming dart. But can I tell you, repent is one of the most beautiful words that we've been given in Scripture. It's a beautiful word. In fact, the Bible says in many places that God has given us repentance. The ability to repent, not not just that he would receive your repentance, but the ability to repent is a gift from God. And that word repent, it means to turn. That's what the word means. And Jesus emphasized how critically important this word was when he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection. He's already been to the cross. He died. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He's appeared to Mary and the other women. He's appeared to Peter and John. A week later, he shows up in an upper room, and the disciples are gathered there. And the Bible says in that moment, in that interaction, Luke chapter 24, Jesus does something they've been probably hoping he would do for three and a half years. It says in verse 45, then in that moment, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. They were so confused about what God was doing. They were so confused about Jesus' plan. They kept waiting for him to start an earthly kingdom. They didn't exactly know how all this was going to work out. But now in this moment, then, 
He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So now for the first time, they have, they have, they have full understanding here. And what does Jesus say? And I think this is so important. It says, he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So here it is. For the first time, they can actually grasp the fullness of God's plan of redemption and what Jesus is doing. Their minds are open to the scriptures. And here's what Jesus talks about. He talks about his death, burial, and resurrection. Nothing more important than that. And he talks about the Holy Spirit coming and giving us power to be his witnesses and to live a godly life. But right between those two things, we see this word, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. There's not a more important message that we can preach. There's not a more important message that we can hear and believe and respond to than this reality that we are to repent. And that word repent means turn. Here's what happens. A lot of times we we get into moments like this and we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit on our lives. And the Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and he'll forgive your sins. And he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And, and oftentimes, we, we get to that point of humility where we acknowledge. Confession just means saying the same thing that God says about it. God knows it's a sin. You knew it was a sin. But now, you've humbled yourself enough to acknowledge it. And you confess, God, I was wrong. That's powerful. That's an incredible moment. But oftentimes, here's what happens. We, we come to that place of, of confession and we say, this is what I've been doing, God. I've let this desire, I've let this person, I've let this hurt from my past. I've let this get so large in my life that I've been sucked into the gravitational pull of, of this reality and, and, I, and I haven't. I haven't pursued you. I haven't been who you wanted me to be. And we confess that, but we don't repent. So repentance is a turn. Repentance says, God, I'm turning away from this thing. I'm turning away from this relationship. I'm turning away from this substance. I'm turning away from the things that have been pulling me outside of my God-given potential. And keeping me grounded in my faith. And now, God, I'm, I'm turning. I'm turning towards your heart. I'm turning towards your plan. I'm turning towards your purpose. Repentance is the key to freedom. Paul was concerned about the church in Corinth because they had confessed. But he was looking at their life and he realized some of them haven't, they haven't repented. They haven't turned. In other words, they said, Jesus, be the Lord of my life, but they weren't following Jesus. You don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder if anybody has known anyone that's been in that place. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry. I blew it. I'm sorry, Lord. 
but no change. And Paul was worried about the church. And so he wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21. He said this. He said, I'm afraid that when I come again to see you, he said, I'm afraid that my God will humble me before you and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Paul said, my fear is when I get there, I'm going to be grieved. Because you confess and you identify and you show up at church, but you didn't repent. Your life's not different. I heard John Bevere give a great illustration about marriage. He said, he said, when a, a bride stands in the back of the sanctuary and, and she begins to walk down the aisle, she's making a bold statement. It, it, it's not just tradition. In that moment, as, as the, the groom stands next to the pastor, sweating, and watching those doors in the back of the church open up, and she comes, eyes locked on that man, And she's walking towards him. She's making a powerful statement. In that moment, she's saying to the other 3.5 billion men on the earth, I'm unavailable. She's saying to every other guy on the face of the earth, I chose him. I picked him. And her father walks her down that aisle, and, and she makes that public statement of saying, I'm giving my life to this one man. Now go back to Paul. You know what Paul is saying about the church in Corinth? He's saying, you're, you're, you're telling me you want to be the bride of Christ and you're coming down the aisle and you look good, but you won't quit seeing your other boyfriends. You're still dating. And Paul's worried. He says, I'm concerned that I'm going to get there and my heart's going to be grieved. Because you put on the outfit and you look the part and you made the confessions, but you haven't given your whole self to the plan and purpose of God for your life. The Bible says in Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So how, do, how do we break free from the sin cycle? I want to share this with you and then we're going to pray together in just a moment. As I was researching for this series and just, just asking the Lord to speak, how many of you know, I, I think Mark Batterson is right when he says every ology is a branch of theology. So, so you, you, can, you can learn a lot about God by studying space or plants or anatomy because God made it all. And so as we were doing some research, I, I came across something that I thought was, well, to me it was remarkable. I, I didn't know this before, but the, the gravity of the earth is not the same in every place on the earth. I, I, I didn't know that. I just figured, you know, gravity was the same gravity everywhere. But uh, apparently it's not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I could jump a little higher in West Africa than I could in East Africa. Because according to the charts that I saw on NASA's website, they've got instruments that read the gravitational pull on the earth, and it's a little bit stronger on the east side of Africa than it is on the west side. And I started wondering, well, that's interesting. And then I started thinking about you and I, and the reality is there, there are things 
in your life and there's things in my life where, where the gravity is a little bit stronger. The temptation to sin is a little bit stronger. Again, there, there's battles that, that you'll never fight that I will, but there's some things that they have absolutely kept you grounded. They've kept you locked down. They've kept you from being who God wants you to be because the gravitational pull in that area of your life is, is strong. But what do we do about it? Well, I was fascinated to learn that the scientists at NASA, they have two spacecraft that they use to measure the variations in the Earth's gravity. These spacecrafts are, are part of what they call the Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment Mission. That's a mouthful. The Gravity Recovery and Climate Experiment Mission. And so to abbreviate it, they just call it the Grace Mission. I, I, got, I about jumped out of my seat when I read that NASA has a Grace Mission. I got to tell you. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, you can't make this stuff up. I'm writing a sermon. Come on. There's a Grace Mission in NASA? And, and the Grace Mission goes right to the place and measures the gravitational pull. And can I just say to us today that, that God has a grace mission of his own. The Bible says that where sin abounds, where it's massive, where it's stronger, where it holds us down the hardest, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. That's the grace mission today. That God knows right where you're at. He knows right what you're going through. And he sends grace to that place. And so I want to pray for you today. As I look across this room, I, I see holy people. I see people that God has called holy. And yet at the same time, I don't see anybody that doesn't have a sinful nature. I don't see anybody that hasn't felt the pull a time or two this week. And so I want to pray for you today. Would you bow your head with me all over this room? If you're here today and that pull of sin has been so strong in your life that it's pulled you away from a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you would say today, Pastor Aaron, I, I need to be set free from that bondage. I need to get some space between me and the things that are pulling me away from God, and I need God to become massive in my heart and in my life. I need him to be the biggest thing with the strongest pull. I need Jesus to rescue me today. If that's you right now with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just be honest today and raise your hand and say, that's me. Pray for me. Pray for me today. Thank you. Thank you, sister. Thank you, brother. Anyone else? You just join these and say, this is me right now. This is between you and God. But come on. I want to know who I'm praying for. Thank you, brother. You can put your hand back down. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. Listen, I, I want you to pray a prayer. Now, there's no magic formula. There's no special words. You got to mean this from your heart. But I'm going to give you the words right now, and I want you to pray it with me. Church, would you join us? Let's say this out loud together. Say, dear God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. The payment for my sin was paid in full at the cross. 
Today, I put all of my faith in that finished work. Today, I confess I'm a sinner and I repent. I'm turning from my old self. I'm turning to Jesus. Jesus, I give you my life. And right now, I receive your spirit. Live in me. Call me above and beyond all that I've previously known. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me all over this room? And can we just give God praise for the work that he's doing right now, right now in this place?